My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior Army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Guys, welcome back to the show. It's the DTD Podcast. Coming tonight from across the pond, we have a paratrooper, a CIA asset, an author of four books, and a guy that's just full of knowledge about the war on terrorism. It's Anthony Stephen Malone. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hi, DJ. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, no problem. I want to get right into this because uh, this is a hot topic right now with Afghanistan, with uh, everything that is being moved around, the pieces that are being moved around in the Middle East. And I want to talk to you mainly about, in the beginning, about what you've done for intelligence gathering, what you've done in the intelligence world, and kind of set up your background of why you know so much that's going on over there. Now, you were embedded and undercover for three years in Afghanistan. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. I was a undercover, not non-official cover operative for American intelligence. Okay. And kind of set us up in that story and, and actually who you were working with over there. I, a sequence of events that happened, and we decided to turn it to our advantage on this one. And I ended up being in maximum security prison in Afghanistan with international terrorist leaders, including Salah Odin and Motawakil Talib Jan. Just so people have an idea, um, Salah Odin's now the head of operations for the Taliban. He's also the gentleman who signed the peace deal in Afghanistan. And he's also the head of the Akani network as well. So a very influential man. I was with Salah nearly nearly every day for a three-year period of time, had the beard, the claws, I went full native. Prior to this, I'd been working and helping American intelligence in Iraq, and I'd spent six months undercover in Hezbollah in Lebanon. So working undercover, gaining a little bit of information, wasn't a really difficult thing to actually do. Being in the prison, it was I should have only been there for maybe a three-month period of time but while I was there we uncovered a full network terrorist network that was operating within the prison here's the thing though that that's so funny to me right off the bat and it, it's something that I talked to you about how does a guy that looks like you that sounds like you end up in an Afghani prison connected with terrorists what i did was i was actually out there as a training pro pro provider and combat photographer um, even though i was still working for american intelligence on and off for quite some time i gave evidence against the governor of kandahar at the time an afghan who was selling the locations of safe houses that were being used by American, British, and Canadian Special Forces in Kandahar. Governor of Kandahar, Sadullah, was selling them to the 
Taliban and Al-Qaeda. I gave evidence against him. He threw his toys out the cot because obviously I nailed his ass to, to the wall over this. Ended up in prison on false charges for a couple of months. Everyone knows Afghanistan's a corrupt country anyway. You pay $100, you get put in jail for a couple of weeks or whatever. I could have paid a bribe and walked straight out the door, but I spotted Salahuddin himself up close and personal and another 10 senior members of terrorist organisations that were actually in prison under false names. No one knew they were there. So then it turns out you have an entire operational cell working out of a prison, which is the safest place to be because no one's going to look for them there. They were running and coordinating an operations room from inside the actual jail. Yeah. And so how do you... <laughs> How do you approach these guys? How do how do they accept you in? Because I, I once again point out you couldn't be more different than these guys. So how how do first do they look at you, and then how do they accept you into the group? This was unusual because I spent a lot of years in the Middle East. Um, I studied a lot of Arabic in Saudi Arabia. I used to live in Lebanon in Beirut as well. I spent years in Iraq, Kurdistan, Syria, so I know the culture. I also look very different to how I do now. Back then, I had a massive beard. Um, my my hair was right down my back. I had very long hair as well. And I just didn't look or acted like a Westerner, for want of a better word. I also had a tan. But I was, I, I was, I was from the United Kingdom, um, and I knew I had to do something a bit outrageous, for want of a better word. So while I was in there, I walked down the Al Qaeda corridor because I had been informed that Salahuddin and the Iqani network were planning to kill me because I was from the United Kingdom. I went to Salad himself personally, stood in front of him and told him if he wanted to kill me to do it himself, not to send any of his little cronies along. That could have went one or two ways. <laughs> yeah. He could have killed me on the spot, could have took my head straight off. But I think he was that surprised I had the balls to walk up a corridor that was full of Al-Qaeda. Some of them were sharpening their knives as I'm walking through the corridor, stood in front of Saladin, and we said, right, let's talk. So instead of him killing me, we actually sat down and had a conversation while we were drinking chai. How does everyone around him, I guess you would say his senior leadership or maybe who's in with him, how do they accept you? Um, they, they didn't at first. They wanted to slot me straight away. They saw me as an absolute threat, but my cover story was very good because I helped them write that before we even went in there. And I was being ostracized and given a hard time by the British Embassy in Kabul. Now, Salahuddin, we knew, had the interpreters on his payroll. 
So everything in the British Embassy being spoken about or near enough, his interpreters were being told and they were feeding it back to Salahuddin personally. Now, when the embassy was saying they didn't like me, they thought I had turned, I was a terrorist. Great. Salahuddin and some of his commanders over time were like, yeah, he's actually, he's okay. It is a prized thing within um, the terrorist network to get a Westerner who has been radicalized. It's a big thing for them. Uh, they knew I was a former member of the elite parachute regiment. Again, I was honest with Salahuddin and I told him personally that I, I had actually served in the British Army, specifically in the powers who they were fighting in Halman at the time. Again, what surprised me, Saladin was already aware of it. He already knew. So his intelligence uh, people had already done a lot of background. I did, and it was a calculated decision. I left out a little bit about me being close to the American military and American intelligence. It was a calculated risk. But I thought, unless he's got someone in the agency, he ain't going to be aware of that. I was actually right. They knew I had served in the British military. They didn't have any idea of anything I'd been doing for the Americans. And so what are they talking about? What, what, because you said, you know, they have kind of an operations center going on in here. What are you learning that the people on the outside are not going to be hearing about what's going on in, in a terrorist world in terrorist actions and terrorist uh, predictions for the future. What are you hearing differently? Because you are technically at the horse's mouth. What are you hearing differently from everyone else? I'll be honest. With you, it was, it was like being in a university for t- terrorism. Everything I thought I knew was turned on its head. These people were highly professional, motivated, well-financed, great organisational skills, not what we were expecting. Um, Definitely not what people outside were expecting either. they thought they might have one or two high-value targets out of 5,000 people, terrorists, in this particular jail. Um, I actually asked my American handler to organize a biometrics team to come in to Block 10, Max Security, and biometrics every single person in that block. Normally, you might get one or two red flags. It was nearly 100% on everybody. They found terrorists in there that they had been hunting for years. Uh, we also found Talib Jan, who turns out that Talib Jan was the head of the suicide bombing network for the Taliban and the Akani network, a very influential man. He was in there as well. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Talib Jan and obviously Salah Din as well. The way I got a lot of the information was I gradually won, won their trust over many years, which every time the British Embassy came up to see me, 
I would kick off, go mental, be calling them um, certain certain names, upsetting the embassy for want of a better word. It was all planned. It was all staged. The embassy had absolutely no idea that I was working for American intelligence at that time. And it got to the point of where I actually, the only thing I ever have asked for American intelligence is that if I am I needed top cover from the American establishment. So when my home country in the future was to turn around and try and uh, ch charge me for being a terrorist commander under the name of Al-Uddin Saeed Ahmed, senior Haqqani network commander, then the Americans intervened and told the Brits, no, he's not, he's actually ours. He's been working as a NOC, non-official cover operative, inside the network for many years. The information he has passed back has been conservatively stopped over 100 terrorist attacks and saved a lot of lives. So you can imagine the, the British establishment had me pigeonholed as being a terrorist commander. <clears throat> Turns out I'm actually not, <laughs> which they were not happy about that at the time. So why do they put you in as a non-official? Uh, Is it easier to do it that way or? Yeah. I think because it was, this was on an absolute strict need to know because the I was meant to be there for three months. I lasted nearly three years and the risk was phenomenal. I was photographing Salahuddin and his commanders, their notebooks. I was cloning their SIM cards, their cell phones. I was audio recording the planning meetings I was sat in. And if I had been caught doing any of this at any point, my head would have come straight off. Um, so the risks were very high. But the level and standard of information intelligence that we were finding, it was stopping terrorist attacks, um, a lot of them. And my thought process was every day inside is an attack stopped and it's an American-British coalition soldier going home that wouldn't have, uh, would have been killed if I hadn't have, uh, stayed in there. So to answer one of the questions I get asked frequently, did I expect to survive the task? Um, no. It got to the point where I did not expect to come out of there alive. I knew I would be caught at some point in time. It was inevitable. But being able to gain that sort of high-level intelligence uh, one of the other things was Salahuddin's father, while he was alive, who was the head of the Akani Network, was the senior mentor and confidant of Osama bin Laden as well, which was how we had access to a lot of very sensitive in information. That's... Go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting to survive it. I wasn't expecting to come out, and my instruction was, unless American intelligence has it confirmed by three 
separate sources. I have been rumbled. I'm about to be executed. You do not pull me out at any time. Because once I'm pulled out, I cannot go back, back in again. And at this point, we were stopping attacks, not just in Afghanistan or the Middle East. We were stopping attacks in the West as well. We were gaining information, contact names, numbers, notebooks of all international contacts. It was an absolute gold mine. And as far as I was concerned, I was going to run with it until I was caught. Then I was killed. I, I had taken this, <coughs> excuse me, very personally because a lot of my friends had been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, across the Middle East from the British Parachute Regiment. And my friends, some friends of mine had been killed who were serving with 101st Airborne. So my brothers and sisters in arms were in Afghanistan and Iraq being killed by a network which I was sat with in Polish Chucky. So I did what any paratrooper would do. I stepped up, took on the tasks, and we got as much information as we could, not just to stop the attacks, but to map the network out, safe houses, bank accounts, how they moved, when they moved. I profiled individual terrorist commanders as well. We knew what medications they're like, where their families are, where they're from, how they move, who do they know. So this started off as a little task and it grew exponentially. I want to talk to you about something else that you're learning there. You're not just learning about terrorist attacks, but you're learning a whole new level of the terrorist game. Uh, and and when I talk to you about that, I, I want to talk to you about you learning that organized crime is now involved in it, uh, the human trafficking that's involved, the narcotics, the weapon smuggling, not just terrorist attacks. You are seeing a coordinated effort by not only terrorist organizations and radicalized organizations, but with organized crime all over the world that are actually funding and helping, not necessarily plan, but the logistics to carry out these attacks. Yes, what, what I just discovered was I had sat in meetings that I had audio recorded. <clears throat> and a lot of these, these meetings were with members of the Akani network, with the Taliban and with the Hezbollah organization as well, and Al-Qaeda. And what I had seen was organized crime, international criminal organizations had partnered up with terrorist organizations. They were working together. And the pipelines between countries for human trafficking, those pipelines, an example would be from Afghanistan into Europe. Those pipelines were being used for the human tra trafficking, human organ trafficking, narcotics, weapons, a lot of things were traveling through these pipelines. The pipelines were being run by organized crime net net networks, and now the terrorist networks were pu pumping their men, their foreign fighters. They were all using the safe houses, and they were using basically 
organized crime was helping to facilitate the movement of international terrorists, their teams, and their supply chains. And so when we talk about something like that, it's kind of a chicken and the egg kind of question that I pose to you. Which comes first, an organized crime or the terrorist networks? Uh, who kind of develops who, or is there any development of the two? Yeah, well, it's a it's a very um, it's a complicated one because where twenty years ago organized crime was separate to international terrorism, now it's not. Now they are combined. We have seen, and the FBI have have, have released this in certain documents that the Akani network, Hezbollah, Al Qaeda, Taliban working together, sharing intelligence, safe houses, the rat lines. The Hezbollah Global Criminal Network is helping to facilitate a lot of terrorist movements between countries. In the UK alone, the human trafficking coming into the UK has expanded in the past 12 months because of COVID, 78%. That is a phenomenal amount of expansion, percentage-wise. The amount of money just in the UK alone from human trafficking in the past year has been in excess of £1.4 billion sterling. Not million, billion. That money in cash is being funneled back down through the rat lines to terrorist organisations. So we need to really have a think about that now. It poses a question that it's not just the military now that will be handling. It's not just intelligence agencies. Now you're going to have to bring law enforcement into it. And not only local law enforcement, but it's on an international level. Uh, because you are now not just attacking, let's say, we're already divided on the front because fighting in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, wherever small precision strikes may be. But we're also now fighting a bunch of different fronts because we're not only fighting terrorist actions, but we're fighting organized crime, which is a different kind of law enforcement that's going to go after that when you're talking about international money laundering, human trafficking. And so I see a coalition that is needed uh, unprecedented to anything that's ever happened before because of the resources that are needed to fight this. So if you can speak a little to what it's going to take, because this is a whole new, now I'm not saying it's new that we're going after these organizations. What I'm saying is it's new and unprecedented on how we have to go after these organizations. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. This is an unprecedented on the scale of this. What we are, what we are looking at now is organized crime and terrorist networks working combined multiple terrorist organizations not standing alone working together um people might not want to acknowledge that hezbollah akani network al-qaeda taliban all working under one umbrella helping each other things have evolved exponentially and because the terrorist networks are working together with organized crime networks western intelligence western law enforcement we need to evolve like the terrorists. We need to evolve and start working together. 
as 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 well this isn't a case of one agency just doing a job this is going to take a massive effort from a lot of different agencies i was speaking to the former deputy director national crime agency roy as well and he's under the same impression as i am we need to get agencies together to start working together sharing information this isn't about protecting someone's little empire in an agency if agencies don't come together start sharing information time sensitive information start talking to each other communicating put egos to one side only thing i'll say on this one is to all the agencies out there what would you do to stop another 911 okay there's no point in trying to talk after the horses bolted out the barn we are facing a evolved threat from terrorist organizations and organized crime we are facing the threat level against the west is the highest it's ever been okay so <clears throat> to counter that we need to get agencies international agencies start working together a lot closer than what we are at, at this moment in time the intelligence agencies and the the police establishments law enforcement do an incredible job they're men and women on the ground they risk their lives they do some fantastic work this needs to come from the top the leadership the leadership of countries the leadership in law enforcement worldwide need to get together get their heads together and start working very closely when you talk about them coming together and working together this has been a problem for a long time where you have one agency that doesn't want to talk to another agency because they want to take the lead or one country doesn't want to share with another country because they're trying to get to the problem how do we come together where we meet all these different entities and all these different countries in order to work together? Now, I know you said leadership, but there's got to be more to it than just that. Yeah, but the leadership at the top, the leadership has got to be seen pulling everyone together. Egos in agencies who are trying to protect their little empires. Great, 20 years ago, doesn't have any space in the present time. The threat has evolved. We need to evolve with the threat. Law, law, law enforcement is the key. Agencies are the key. Human trafficking, very important. The pipelines. We need to look at this very carefully in the West because if you can chalk off their supply of money, you can reduce money going back to the terrorist organizations in turn will reduce the threat or their ability command and control choke off the money close down the rat lines it's it's a small win but it helps it's very important the pipelines are such a critical part for human trafficking where you can move human beings you can move hypothetically surface to air missiles you can move weapons, explosives, you can move anything. So closing down the pipelines between countries is very important. The money, follow the money, 
proceeds of crime. National Crime Agency is a, is a bit like your FBI. They can seize bank accounts. They can choke off the, the money going back to the Middle East to fund international terrorist net networks. Not only of all the things that you mentioned there, the big one that comes to my mind is smuggling terrorists in these rat lines uh, where you have uh, migrants or illegal immigrants coming across. You have a very high probability that a terrorist is coming in with that group. Would you agree? Uh, I would absolutely agree with that. And I've actually seen evidence of that as well. Um, so uh, people like the FBI and the National Crime Agency, migration, immigration, illegal immigration into Europe, the United Kingdom and the, the United States from your southern borders, organized criminal networks and terrorist organizations are taking advantage of this and they are smuggling terrorists through these pipelines as well. And it's not just the United States, it's the UK, it's all over Europe. It's just coming in from different areas. And and you and I had spoken before about, uh, I think you said Liverpool and some other things yeah. where where they're seeing a very high uptick in, in immigrants, not only immigration coming in, but that possibility of a terrorist organization moving in, a ra radicalized uh, person moving in with, with actual uh, intentions on an attack. Yeah, the the pro the problem is there. If when you can move large quantities of people or equipment or weapons, narcotics through pipelines across borders into countries, then we have a problem. Our borders need to be secured. End of. More work needs to be done with this. The <coughs> Excuse me. The problem of the terrorists, my opinion is, a lot of them are already in Europe. They're already in the UK. They're already in America. In the old days during the Cold War, these would be called sleepers cells. Uh, it's my opinion that some of these radicalised individuals are already in the West now. So with governments sometimes not taking the approach and and this is the last thing that we can talk about about this uh sometimes you find it very um very hard to convince a government to shut down their borders they worry about iso nationalism they worry about looking bad to the world but i think you agree you and i agree on that that that's a big problem now if you have people coming across your borders undocumented people uh, possibilities of terrorists moving in with sleeper cells that are already here. But a lot of people have a hard time coming to the decision that those borders should be shut down. It, well, it's what people got to understand is it's not the borders that have been closed down. It's the, uh, the illegal movement of, I use the word immigrants, but they're not all immigrants. Right. Some of these are terrorists trained in camps, trained in terrorist training camps using the illegal immigration to come in into Europe, the United Kingdom, and obviously the, the Americas. So we're not saying close the borders. Definitely not, not saying that. We just need to start clamping down on how easy it is to get to move between countries. 
geographical borders for these people do not exist. It's not like they go through passport con control. If no one's got anything to hide, get get a get a visa, apply, come into the country. The government have their own way of checking that. It's the illegal migrants immigration pipelines, which are being manipulated by terrorists and criminal organisations on a massive scale. When you've got so many people coming into different countries illegally, you've got illegal weapons, narcotics, anything can come come through the pipelines, both in America and Europe, the United Kingdom. So I think the governments have got the clamp down on, on this now, because if we don't start working together, the problem's going to escalate. I feel as if the bad guys are 10 steps ahead of us at, at the moment anyway. So we need a concerted effort from the leadership coming down to actually try and close down these pipelines now. Where you can move a human being, you can move anything. A hypothetical, you can move surface-to-air missiles, you can move narcotics, illegal firearms, or foreign fighters, terrorists. Full teams of terrorists, hypothetically, so I'm going to be very careful how I say this, could be moving through the pipelines into countries. Terrorists are hiding within the immigration coming into countries. That's a fact. Not many people want to speak about it because they don't have a solution. But it's it's happening, both in, the, in Europe, the United Kingdom, and in the Americas. Again, it's information. There is some incredible people working within the, the agencies, United Kingdom and in America. And I've spoken to a lot of these people who were on the actual ground. What they're, what they're telling me is information is not being shared quick enough between agencies. The In America, you've got the cohorties and the cartels. They are helping to funnel people in. They, their, their intelligence networks is incredible. They have enough money to be able to do whatever they want to actually do. So we need to get ahead of the game. Easy way to get ahead of the game, work together agencies. Instead of each agency trying to protect its own little patch, work together for the greater good of the country, both in the United Kingdom and America. These agencies are there to protect the people, not to protect their own little organisations. So I think when people take a step back and see the exponential threat against us now, um, I'm hoping that people now start to work even closer. I, I think that's a problem, though, that goes through not only the UK and the United States, when you say that people are protecting their own little kingdom, uh, you hear a lot about that stuff. That was a, that was a big contention point when nine 11 happened that the FBI wasn't talking to the CIA. The CIA wasn't talking to the FBI intelligence agencies weren't necessarily sharing the lead. And by not sharing the lead, 
then uh, it ended up where um, no one could be really to blame for an attack to happen. Now, after that got cleared up, uh, like you said, it's it's been amazing intelligence since then. So many attacks and stuff. But I I, I almost want to think that it 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 took a incident level that big in order to make everyone stop and look around and go, okay, we do have to share information. This is the only way that this job is going to get done because these organizations have plot and planned and watched and changed their methods enough that we're going to have to tell each other what everyone knows. Yeah, I think it's important, but the, the question needs to be asked at a very high level. What would the agencies do to stop another 9-11? Share information. There's no point in sharing it after the horse has bolted out the barn. It needs to happen before. And what we're seeing now, especially over the past, past week, with American and British coalition troops being pulled out of Afghanistan, there is a question mark. Afghanistan has not changed. Situation hasn't changed. It's the politics in the West, in the United Kingdom and in America. Politics have changed, but the threat is still there. The Akani network is a very prominent network now. Al-Qaeda are now headquartered in Iran. Hezbollah network is a global terrorist network with a criminal network within it. So we're actually seeing the bad guys are getting smarter and stronger. Now, I have my own opinions about pulling all troops out of Afghanistan. I think it's a political move. I understand that. But we really need to think about it because if it goes wrong there, then we will have a bigger problem to deal with in the future. Having a quick fix now might cause us problems down the line. So I think take a step back, observe, see see what happens, I think. Well, I think that's a huge problem that you're talking about. When you when you talk about there there has been a steady war going on for twenty about twenty give or take years right now. Yeah. And then for all of a sudden to say, uh, we're going to pull out completely, I think that you, and and I'm no expert on world politics, but I think you leave a huge vacuum there. Because one, I think you show our hand first off, and, and I talked to uh, uh, Patrick Collins last week, and we, we talked about this a little bit, and I think we show our hand, and, and he agrees with that. He It was actually him that said, we're showing our hand to the enemy, and we're saying, we're going to back out. So what happens with those uh, fighters that are there? They say, all right, guys, let's pull back. Let's lay low until they pull out of here. And then we can go and do what we need to do again with no opposition. On the second point of that, when we pull out of there all of a sudden after 20 years, what happens to all those allies of ours? What happens to the people that have been helping us and we leave them uh, with nothing to support them? So let's go over the yeah. first one first. Do you agree that it will cause a vacuum over there? And I think that the problem will get exponentially bigger. I've had a, um, a very exclusive inside look 
I can see things from a Western point of view, but I've all, because of the work I've done on undercover for American intelligence, I've actually physically sat with Salahuddin for a long period of time over many years. Saladin is now the head of the Akani network. I've sat with senior members of Al-Qaeda, senior members of the Hezbollah network as well, in the same room, okay? Now, because I've seen things from their point of view as well, they can afford to play the long game. My thought is, I think Salahuddin will be offered a senior position within the Afghan government, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's offered the foreign minister's job. Now let's just take a minute and think about that. An international terrorist on the most wanted list in the world is being spoken to about becoming a member of the Afghan government. I think it, it, it could work, but I, I can see there being problems because... Like you said, as soon as Western forces pull out, which they will, they will all pull out now, is what is left there. It is a very difficult one. The terrorists are playing the long game. They think they can win this. They really do. By just the, the agreement, the peace agreement that was signed by Salahuddin as well. That he is stuck pretty much to that. So he hasn't given any reason not to trust him. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this now because I actually know Saladin on, on this one. He is not a low-educated individual. He is multilingual, highly educated, a planner, and he's a natural, charismatic leader. Of his men okay that is a problem you put someone like that in a senior member of the government he is going to galvanize now it could go either way it could be good for us in the west or it could be bad one of the things he he has done and no one really speaks about this when isis was on the rise in eastern afghanistan and in southern Afghanistan, it was Salahuddin, the Akani network, who stamped a lot of that out. Okay? Now, he is the enemy of the West. There is no doubt about that. He is not a friendly. And if me and him ever met again on the battlefield, he would be an enemy. And I would be his enemy as well. So I don't want anyone thinking I'm siding with him. I am not. Okay? But... Being with him inside that network for nearly three years, I got to see how they operate. They don't do random. They're 20 steps ahead of us. Okay? So I think people need to step back here and have a think. What happens after September? What members of terrorist organizations, because he isn't the only one, there's other international terrorists that are being spoken to to hold key positions in the new Afghan government they've got to be brought into the into the into the loop 
Because if they don't, and anyone tries to keep these guys out of the loop, civil war will happen pretty much instantly in Afghanistan. The only way to stop an all-out all out civil war is to bring the bad guys into the fold. Now, a lot of people won't agree with that, but that is the fact. Afghanistan is not the UK, Europe or America. It's a very different place over there. And people have got to realise an Afghan solution or an Afghan problem is an Afghan solution. Getting these guys to the table and actually getting to where we are now, where the bad guys are talking to the good guys and trying to move forward. Ten years ago, that would have been impossible. Nobody would have ever thought that. But we have an opportunity where the younger generation, people like Salahuddin, are in a position of power. Okay? We need to take advantage of that. He is not the old school. He is new school. And how he thinks is very differently to how the Taliban thought 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I think there could be, it could work, but it's a, it's a very difficult one because if we get this wrong, the blowback on the West will be phenomenal. The fact of Al-Qaeda have been confirmed by the FBI as now headquartering in Iran is a very telling sign. They're not headquartered in Afghanistan now. So I think the Afghan government realised the people in power or the people who could be in power very shortly have realised if we harbour international terrorists or terrorism, we have a problem here. Okay? So I think it's there, there's there's not a quick, easy fix to it, but some of these so-called government advisors need to step back and talk to people who are on the ground over there from State Department and overseas intelligence agencies. I would pose a question to you, though, and, and I'll play devil's advocate or, or argumentative to you. That's been tried before. You can look down the list of Iran, Iraq, other places where we said, hey, these guys have some power. Let's put them into the position of power. And it's gone horribly wrong. Yeah, it, it, it has gone horribly wrong. And I would also. Yeah. Well, I would also pose to you, though, that Afghanistan has been a, at war for ever, whether that be with the yeah. Russians, whether that be with themselves, whatever. So I, I guess I have a, I guess my problem with the the proposition that you say uh, by bringing these guys in, I don't in my mind see that that works. I I see that we're giving someone a position of power that possibly could abuse, and more than likely, if we look down the history of it, will abuse. Yeah, um, I totally agree there. But the the problem that we've got is. If we don't bring them into the into the Pope, we're in bring elements into the new Afghan government. What are we going to look at then? An all-out civil war, which is going to drag everyone in. Um, so, 
to answer your question on this, I don't agree with it. There, there's actually not, in my opinion, a right answer. But it's the both evils. And it's trying to pick the lesser one that's going to draw the West back into a war again. Yeah, I that and that's that's the whole thing that that I get around to is when we look it almost seems as if there isn't a solution. Does that I mean it like you yeah. said picking the lesser of two evils but it almost seems like there is no solution no matter what because sooner or later Someone is going to have to pick up those pieces, whether that be the United States, whether that be UK, whether that be the Russians, whenever they had, whoever it may be, time and time again, we have seen, and we'll use Afghanistan just as the example, because that's who yeah. you're talking about right now. But time and time again throughout history, we have seen go back to there, go back to there, go back to there. It's just a different combatant. So I don't know that there is any solution to it. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm one of these individuals who I, I've travelled a lot, spent a lot, a lot of time on the ground over there. This isn't just things I have read. I've been there. I have witnessed this. The more I know, the less I understand. And I've been in the Middle East on and off for 20 years, if not more. And it is such a complex tribal system. We can't look at it through Western eyes. Um, Afghan problem needs an Afghan solution. We cannot give a solution. If we could, we would have already done that. What we've got to look is how can we withdraw ourselves from a war that has lasted nearly 20 years? And it has sucked a lot of the resources out of Western economies. And it has cost a lot of soldiers their lives. We have lost a lot of men. Um, the United Kingdom, America, Canada, the whole coalition. So we need to extract ourselves from the Middle East. How we do that and what we do to help our partners, our local partners who have supported us, is a problem. Because um, once we pull out, what protection have they got? Um, interpreters, for want of a better word. Um, in, in the, in, the interpreters will be t targeted. There's no two ways about that. They will be. So I think... Western countries have got a duty of care. That's just my opinion. I don't know what policies could be written between now and September, but I think we need to really look at, we're pulling out great, but our partners will never trust us again if we just cut and run and don't help the people, the local people who have helped us. Because if it wasn't for the local people, our casualty numbers and figures would have been a lot higher than what they actually are now. So I think the politicians need to stop thinking as politicians and actually listen 
to people on the ground of what is happening and what could happen as as well. I I personally think we need to pull our guys out. I think 20 years is a long war. But a quick fix might not be the, the answer right now. That's my opinion. Like I said, there's not a straightforward answer here. Yeah. If anyone does come out with an answer and they think, oh, this is going to work if we do this, <clears throat> with due respect, um, I don't think they know what they're talking about. It's too much of a complex um, situation now. But I think the, um, the West has got to start thinking of itself. And it might not be a bad thing if we give the Afghan, the people, the country and the government the opportunity to deal with things internally it might not work it might we don't know if we don't try we don't know but we need to learn from the mistakes that have been made in iraq libya and obviously afghanistan so we need to think differently how we have been for the past 20 years to this point um personally i hope it actually works well whether it does i do not i do not know but time time will tell well what's your idea then you say that we can't just leave the people that have supported us over there that have partnered with us so what is your idea to take care of that because once again i'll point out in history if you look at places where we do humanitarian aid, uh, that we are trying to get food and supplies into, when you have, and I don't know if this is the proper term to use, but when you have warlords in place or when you have people that might not have the best goals in mind that are sitting at the table, as you said, yeah. usually that aid doesn't get to those people. So now we're even further back because now we're trying to supply aid to those people, but it's getting shut off. We have um, essentially left there, and now this is taken over. I see it as us or someone having to push back in there to push that back out. And like I said, we've seen it time after time in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 happened a lot in history. But what we've got to look at, and this is where this is going to go way above my pay grade on this one. When obviously Western forces are pulled out of Afghanistan, then Western countries need to sit down with the Afghan government as it is now and the potential other members of the future Afghan government. And they're going to, we're going to have to say, right, you've got the opportunity here. We're pulling out, help the people. Let's stop an all-out civil war and look after your people it is possible because of the personalities that want western forces out of the middle east especially Af afghanistan give them the opportunity we're pulling out let's see what they do because if they cock it up and there's a massive civil war then we were like you know some politicians got it wrong we shouldn't have pulled out. 
to keep us from being in another war for 20 more years okay i think it's worth the risk to give the local leaders you call them warlords that is accurate let's call them what they actually are terrorists and warlords self-serving that's what they are but there could be an elements within the terrorist networks that are highly educated and they don't see a profit in war it could be about time that maybe they want things to calm down a bit as well because it doesn't serve them to be going up against the biggest and the best military in the world for another 20 years um so i think there could be we could actually see goods come out of troops being pulled out but we've got to look after the people who have helped us because if things ever do go wrong and we need to go back in again if we've and i'm going to use the word betrayed local partners not fulfill our obligations or duty of care they will never trust us again, ever. So I think where some politicians need to take a step back out of this one, listen to the people who are on the ground from the intelligence services and look after our assets on the ground. Make sure them and their families are okay. Because if we ever need to call on them again to help us, if we've always been honest with them and helped them, they will remember that what happened in kurdistan an exact example of that a lot of western countries washed their hands of the kurds some western countries did not they helped them if it wasn't for the kurds isis would never have been defeated so people have got to remember that we've got to look after our partners over there very important that so what happens with the ones that are okay? So we take this uh, this guy and we put him in at the table. We we bring him into the government, but we have these ra radical <clears throat> excuse me radicalized people that are still out there in these organizations in Al Qaeda and all the different groups that you're talking about. They don't just go away. They're radicalized, and I think yeah. that they get the same idea though as you say where. They feel, I guess you would say, betrayed by maybe the people that are stepping into the government. And do we see an, an uptick in terroristic activity? Because you see these guys that have trained and, and done this and, and been radicalized and all these kind of things. And then they come to where there's no mission. Do we see it break off? And it's already decentralized. So do we see splinter cells everywhere now? I think I think a lot of that is the answer to your question there is yes you will see some of the radicalized people trying to go off and do their their own thing in splinter cells an example though to look at this was when ISIS was becoming very strong in parts of Afghanistan it was the Afghan warlords and terrorists themselves who stamped a lot of that out nobody expected that 
everyone thought it would have to be Britain and America again going in dealing with, with ISIS. People like Salahuddin, the Akani network, they clamped down on it and they clamped down on it hard. Okay? So if they can do that there, they might be able to control a lot of the other ones, a lot of the splinter groups as 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 well. If they hadn't have done that, I would have said nearly impossible to control it. But they've proven they can, which was a bit of an unusual one. We were not expecting that. The West was not expecting it. So again, Afghan solution to an Afghan problem. They didn't want a radicalized group like ISIS operating in Afghanistan. It brought a lot of attention and they didn't like it. There's extremism, then there's extreme extremism. They're not all the same. There's all different levels, different affiliations. So if that hadn't have happened and ISIS was near enough stamped out in Afghanistan where it could have went the other way, we could now be we could have been looking at Afghanistan being the home of a terrorist organization that was even worse than al-qaeda it never happened because not because of any in, interference or intervention from the west afghan they dealt with it themselves so if they can deal with that i have a very glimmer and it is only a little glimmer of hope maybe they complete themselves they might not but the alternative is we stay in a war in Afghanistan for another tw 20 years. So like I said, there's not a straightforward answer. There's not a right on this. There's not a wrong from this. I do feel as if now the time is good for the West to pull back, pull out, give them a chance. Let the Afghans rule themselves. Yes, there's gonna, it's going to leave a bit of a bit of taste in your mouth when we see non-terrorists being brought into senior members of the government in Afghanistan. It will happen, but it's the only way. If you don't bring them into the government and bring them in on the decision-making, we're going to hostilize them. Then, like you said, we're going to have a splinter cell, another splinter network, and we're back where we were 20 years ago. Um, interesting thing about Saladin, and your viewers won't be aware of this, Saladin is the head of operations for the Taliban. Fact. The head of the Akani network. Fact. Your viewers might be shocked that Saladin supports the education of women in Afghanistan. He will stand by that. So again, people didn't know that. That's one of a hundred things. And he will. So you might find having one of the bad guys, and he is, he is an enemy, he is a bad guy, having him in government with his own ideas of how to move forward. Okay? The West is pulling out. Him and the network will come in with other members of the government as well. It could work. We could be sat here in a year's time where the violence has decreased in Afghanistan. If that isn't worth the risk in trying, 
I don't know what actually is. One other thing before we get to your books that I want to pose a question to you. In your intelligence and 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 everything that you're seeing come across your desk, have you noticed that there has been an uptick in radicalized Westerners? Yes. And so I guess that poses another problem because then we start to fight wars on all different fronts because we not only have to worry about guys that we can look at and we know that's the bad guy, but now we have an uptick in Westerners being radicalized being already citizens of these countries. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, and how do we combat that? I think a lot of the – now, this is just my opinion here, so I'm not going to offend anyone by saying what I'm about to say. I think social media is can be a very good tool to use for good, but I think as a recruiting tool for extremism – it's a bad thing. Um, a lot of people who are groomed, trafficking networks, um, terrorist organizations, recruitment, radicalization as, as, as well, a lot of it is done online. So I think the social media networks, the people who actually own them, could be doing a lot more and they need to get around the table and start talking to law enforcement and agencies to help stem the recruitment. Anybody can type in a couple of words into Google. It takes you about five minutes to find a chat room that's got extremism in it. It's not hard. It's there. Okay? We have to live with this now. Technology is great when it's advancing and it is evolving, but our laws need to evolve quickly with social media. In the United States, you, you do actually have some laws about what can and can't happen on social media. In the United Kingdom, we have hardly any, and that's fact. We are so behind the curve on it, it's unreal. But I think stemming things on social media and denying people access to chat rooms that are specifically used for extremism and to re recruit and radicalize people, that would help. It's not the solution, but it would help. We're not on about Big Brother watching everybody. That is what everyone's doing. I'm not saying that, and I don't agree with that. But I do feel as if some of these social media networks, and I'm not going to name anyone particular, some of them could do a lot more to help law enforcement because radicalization is a problem. Either way you look at it, it's a problem. So I think people need to, it's all right making money and doing things with social media, but the people who own these social media platforms need to be a little bit more responsible and look at the bigger picture of what is happening. Like I said, I'm not I'm going to offend anybody by saying any of that. It's my opinion, but it's also the opinion 
of a lot of law enforcement who I speak with weekly basis all over the world. Let's talk about your books for a minute, because uh, you're you're quite the author. You have four books underneath you, and I think one of those is even a, a photographic book um, of photos that you've yeah. taken. And all over your website, there's photos of of all the places you've been, all the people that you've you've talked to. So let's talk about Honor Bound one and two. Uh, give us a synopsis, and then kind of walk us through them. Right. Um, one, I am not. I'm not an author. I can't. I can't write well. But I. I did. The. The first book on about part one was about my time in Afghanistan, and it briefly touches on how I started doing a little bit of work for the American intelligence. It was not meant to be a commercial book. I wrote it as a aid memoir for American intelligence so their operatives or undercover operatives could could read it and it was a very straight to the point no holds barred assessment on what works undercover and what does not so it wasn't actually originally written as a as a commercial book a memoir i sent it to a colleague of mine who's a colonel he read it straight away um, and I said, I've written it myself, not a ghostwriter. There's a couple of spelling mis- mistakes in it, most most probably. And my English isn't the best in the world. But I wrote it so people will get the facts of it. He was absolutely blown away by what I'd actually, actually written. A lot of it came from my detailed d- 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 diaries that I kept all the time when I was, when I was working undercover as well. Um, and I thought the objective of my first book was for people to learn from my experiences as well. Back then, Salahuddin was an unknown entity, Talib Jan, Motawakil, very unknown people back then. Now these guys are the heads of international terrorism organizations. So I think people could still gain a lot of information and they could learn a lot from what i saw and experienced as as well um they're not your normal military gun hole action thing it's not what they what they actually are i didn't want it to read like a military a military book i had to talk very briefly about being in in the military because obviously it explains a lot why i do what i do as well um, my personal motivation for writing the books was, like I said, for people to learn from my experiences. All the proceeds or royalties from my books goes to help homeless military veterans, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. So I don't make anything on the books. They don't make a great deal, but what I do make goes in to actually, actually help the the veterans why did did i get involved in intelligence work that was quite an easy one to to answer after being in the british army i became an embedded combat photographer with 101st airborne division in iraq at that time it was under the command of a friend of mine general david petraeus i while i was there 
I met some members of American intelligence and the relationship grew over a long time. Wasn't anything exciting at first. I was out on the ground finding a little bit of information. I was anything I thought was was relevant from a military point of view or security point of view, I would pass that back. Being from a military background myself, a British power power trooper, I was treated very differently when I was with um, the US military. I wasn't classed as a photographer. I was just classed as another airborne brother there. Um, I used my military skills many times while I was a combat photographer, helped save my life and helped save the lives of some of the soldiers I was with at the time as well. So it worked well. Um, I lost 28 of my close friends since 9-11. Um, so, and they were killed by terrorist um, networks in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, the motivation of me fulfilling any tasks I was given by American intelligence was a very personal thing for me as, as well. Um, I wasn't looking at becoming an asset for the CIA. It wasn't on my radar. I wasn't really in, interested in it. But I just happened to be at the wrong place at the right time. And I had the raw skill sets and mentality to infiltrate. First, the Hezbollah network for six months in Lebanon which while then that time we stopped a beach terrorist attack on off-duty American and British forces in Cyprus. Then I ended up working in Afghanistan and I spent th nearly three years undercover in maximum security prison, Afghanistan. <coughs> so, yeah, it's been interesting, <laughs> for want of a better, better word. Let's talk about your YouTube channel and, and we'll start to wrap this up. So, um, you have a YouTube channel. It's, uh, it's very popular. Uh, you do pretty much long format interviews, but you bring in people from the intelligence world, military world. Um, what gave you the idea for that? Was it your photographer background or, or how did you get into that? Yeah. Well, yeah, the YouTube channel is called the Patriot show. Um, it was, I've set it up myself. It's, it's not big. It's, it's me and a couple of, of, of my friends. <clears throat> we, I, I, I originally set it up to help promote small veteran companies, both in the United States and the United Kingdom. Because of COVID, a lot of businesses are really struggling. So I thought I can give them a free platform to come on, advertise, do talks get their company name out there the guests on me on me show it it, it it could be anybody it's a platform for veterans to come on and talk um i just so happen to have some very close friends who are now in very senior positions within intelligence agencies and governments all over the world so I literally just picked up my little black book around my friends and said, right, 
now you are the director of that agency or deputy director of this agency would you like to come on the show for a chat and everyone has said yes absolutely but now it seems to evolve we now do interviews talking about current affairs afghanistan the human trafficking networks and people i think are finding it very informative which is what the ob objection is so with with all of this what is your actual what's your end game here what what's next for you and and what do you hope to do from the books from youtube kind of all encompassing what is it that you is your end game in this my what i would love if i could dream of one thing right now it would be for my story my books to be made into a film and the proceeds of that film would be to buy a ranch or small holding in the united states and that ranch will be turned into a veterans retreat for both american and british veterans military veterans and service personnel so it gives them somewhere to go with them and the families so that is the end game right yeah well that's uh that's quite a that's quite a dream uh that that happens in the united states and i absolutely can see that happening um i have someone coming on uh in a week or two that that they do that very thing where they have built homes and different things for homeless but it's for homeless veterans but it's not just giving them housing it's working through the mental part of it it's working through the physical part of it all that kind of stuff so as the same as you it's an all-encompassing and it's a it's a great thing to do to get people kind of on the right path because um I think if the veterans, I, I heard someone say only a veteran can know another veteran or know what they're going through. Um, and, and I think with all of your experience, that's a, that's a fantastic thing that you want to do. So let everyone know where they can find you. Um, if you type my name into the internet, Anthony Stephen Malone, um, I've got, a, I've got a website. People can look, have a look at that. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, my contact details are on there and my inf information's out there. So if anyone wants to contact me or if there is a veteran out there going through a hard time and he just wants to have a quick chat with another another veteran who's been through a hard time as well, because I have and a lot of the other guys have, my contact de details are there as well. Guys, you can find him at anthonymalone.me.uk. You can see his show, The Patriot Show, on YouTube. Make sure you check out his books. You can find them on Amazon, Honor Bound, Part 1, Part 2, A Photographic Journey for Another Honor Bound. If you want more of me, you can find me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Thank you guys for listening in. Uh, I'm so excited that you were here, Anthony. I thank you so much for taking the time. I know there's a huge time difference. That's going to be the show, guys. That's Anthony. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We're out of here. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. See you later.